Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter fans. Eric Sorensen here, ready for another episode of your Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter podcast here in Big Country Studios, located in Ellensburg, Washington, ready to bring on Jason and Kelly. And guys, we got another dynamite episode for you. Too good to keep to yourself. We need to get this one out there. Guys, make sure you get to your special spot. You can listen to this where no one's going to bother you. Turn on airplane mode. Get yourself a snack and a drink and sit down while Pat Bailey, the assistant coach and recruiting coordinator for Oregon State University, breaks down culture, breaks down hitting, and breaks down just his overall path through baseball. It's very awesome. And I can't wait for everybody to hear this. So please get on there and share. Get on Facebook, Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter. Get on Twitter at Fungo Banter PNW. And please spread the word of our Fungo Banter podcast. It's been so much fun making these. Hopefully you guys are enjoying it. And please reach out to whoever needs to hear this. A new coach, someone looking their way in baseball, trying to find their path. Please share. Hopefully this there's something in these episodes that we can help these guys out. So please reach out, share, get on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Give it a share. Let people know what's going on in the Pacific Northwest. And also give our supporter Safeguard a call. 509-547-1714. www.safeguard.com. Dave Cruzen, all your apparel needs, team uniform, the stuff that we are you're going to see us handing out here soon, all from those guys. Great work. So please check them out. Well, without further ado, let's bring on Coach. Well, Fungo Banter fans are back with another guest for your Fungo Banter podcast. Really excited to have you on, Coach. Pat Bailey, Assistant Coach and Recruiting Coordinator, Oregon State University. Coach, thank you for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. So right away, hard-hitting question, what's your favorite Fungo? Well, we know what that is in SSK. You can't get them anymore. <laughs> a bummer. I mean, they are made. They were made in Japan. I don't know if they make them anymore, but by far and away the best Fungo I've ever used. It was a game changer. In the fungo skills, I'll I'll admit that that's for sure. Well, it's so light, you could you know, once I started using them, as, and especially as I got older, they were a lot funner. Playing <laughs> with some of the other ones, the ones we have now are, I don't know. I mean, we have contracts, so we, I won't say who we get them. <laughs> they're they're heavier and they're not as much fun to swing. Absolutely. Well, coach, we you know we always like to start with our guests and talk about their path and career in baseball. You know, what's the start of coaching? Uh, when did you want to and know you wanted to get into coaching? And, and and then after that, talk about who's helped you the most along the way. Wow. Uh, get it, getting into coaching. Um, as in college, I was a sophomore in college, and a professor took me out to dinner and said, you should go into education. And I, I laughed. I was majoring in business management at the time. And I said, I'm already two years into my business management degree, and I do not have any interest in going longer than four years. Um, and so, you know, he, he just, he said, would you at least take this one education class? And I said, I'll take it, but I have no interest in it. So I took the education class, I ended up changing my major to business education. And it's funny because when I graduated from the University of Idaho, I had enough credits to get my degree in business management, but I also got my education certification. And I was offered a job my senior in college after I finished planning and going to school uh, up in Spokane for a job that was $30,000 a year. And I chose 
become an educator. I started at Wyland High School at eleven thousand eight hundred dollars a year. So that's how I got started. And I honestly, I did it for one reason because I wanted to coach. I wanted to have an opportunity to coach. So and I wanted to coach baseball. I coached football and baseball in high school. I coached. I was in high school for seventeen years. I was a JV coach for three years at Willamette. Then I became the head coach when I was 20, 25. So when I became the head coach at Willamette High School. And then I was a head coach uh, at Willamette for three years. And I was at uh, Westland High School for 11 years. So I was a high school coach for 14 years. And I taught. And honestly, I ended up loving teaching. I taught it. Uh, in high school for 17 years, I taught uh, business management. Most class I taught business management, accounting, and business law. And once in a while, I'd have to teach a typing class, which honestly, I, that was just okay. I'd have an attitude adjustment on that one. <laughs> and then uh, when I went to George Fox, I taught either intro to business or I taught management 300. And if somebody, when I was in high school, had told me I was going to have to, I ended up with my master's plus 30 credit hours. And that's a long story too, besides that. But uh, if somebody would have told me how to do all that, I would have probably would have just stayed with business management and went out and got a, a job in business. But, you know, I firmly believe that uh, there's a Proverbs 16, 9 says, in his heart, man makes plans, but God determines his path. And I really believe that this is what the Lord wanted me to do. That is so true, man. That is so true, coach. Um, you know, talk to us a little bit about your time there at Willamette and Westland. Uh, what were the things that you you learned along the way to get to where you're at today? Yeah, um, and I'll answer that second question uh, that Eric asked me as well. Um, I started out in Willamette High School. Um, you know, it's funny when you're a young coach. I thought when I became the head coach, I knew so much, and honestly, I didn't know anything. <laughs> when I started going to clinics and stuff, I thought, oh, my gosh, I don't know very much. Um, but, uh, I was there for three years and then I went to Westland high school. The first year I was at Westland, we got in state plus my second year there we were seven and nine and 10. And, um, I thought I just reevaluated in terms of what I wanted to do. And my wife and I listened to, uh, oh my gosh, it was a guy's name, Zig Ziglar. I don't know if you know what Zig Ziglar is, but. He did a thing on goal setting, and back in that day, it was it was a tape. It was an eight track, not an eight track tape, but a, a you know a cassette tape. And I listened to it, and I wrote down. Uh, we actually did it on New Year's Eve, and I uh, wrote down goals and what I needed to do. And the goals I wrote down, I think I was either twenty eight or twenty nine at the time. I had to be twenty nine because it's my second year at Westland. I wrote down uh, things that I needed to do to have an opportunity to improve as a baseball coach. One of the, I, I'll just share with you some things I wrote down. One was, uh, I'm going to go to, I became a member of the ABCA, and I'm going to go to the ABCA clinic every year. Secondly, a huge clinic back in the day was the Northwest Coaches Clinic up in Seattle, and I made a commitment to go to that every year. And then um, I, I made a commitment to go to a minimum of three clinics a year. I made a commitment to read one book a month whether it's a business book, whatever, you know, leadership, whatever. I made a commitment to read one book a month and I made a commitment to get two mentors. And so the mentors I got was Terry Polry, so at the time it was the University of Portland. And then Terry ended up uh, coaching the Mariners organization for about 16 years. And then uh, the other mentor I, I had that really helped me out a, a ton uh, was Tom House. 
uh, who used to be with the, I don't even know if Tom's still with the National Pitching Association, but I hooked up with him and Terry helped me with that. Uh, another guy's, guy's name was uh, Bragg Stockton, who was a, uh, oh my goodness, he was at uh, uh, school in Houston at the time. He's a pitching guy. I didn't know a lot about pitching, so that's why I picked Tom and and, and um, uh, but anyhow, um, I followed through with that. I started making a commitment to read a book every month. And I'm reading a book right now called uh, Culture Code. But um, I, I would say probably the number one guy that helped me the most was Terry Polaris. I mean, he just, he didn't need to, but he took me under his arm. He was the head coach at Westland. And he went to the University of Portland and became the head coach there. And uh, Terry just had a huge impact on my life in terms of helping me out. Now talk about that trajectory. Uh, transition you go from uh you know a high school coach and maybe what what got you into george fox and then you know talk about your time there you have a chance to to win a national title um appear in a lot of different ncaa tournaments but talk about the tra uh, transition between high school and george fox and then and then maybe your time there maybe some of your best memories yeah um well, as a high school coach, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen after that seven and 19 season. One is I got really involved with the Little League Association, and we created a system at Westland where coaches had to uh, go through. I, I did six clinics a year in January and February before we got started, and they had to attend four out of the six uh, to be certified to coach from Westland. So that was huge because by the time we got guys in, into our high school program, they knew, all, they knew our system because coaches at the lower levels were teaching that. And it took a couple of years. I, I remember um, it was 1986 uh, was my first year uh, at Westland. And then 87, uh, or excuse me, 85. 86 was when we went seven and nine, 10. 87 and 88, we were 12 and 14 both years, didn't make the playoffs. And then from 89 till 95, uh, and I had a little stint at the University of Portland coaching with Terry as a pitching coach there. Uh, but um, anyhow, that we won our leg every year except for one. And the one year we didn't win it, we got in the state championship game in 95 my last year there. So uh, that was kind of the start of me having the opportunity uh, to coach the college level. Uh, there was jobs that opened up, but um, my wife and I, uh, when we started having children, uh, we my wife wanted to stay home. Uh, even though she had her college degree, she wanted to stay home with the kids. So I couldn't take part-time jobs. I had to have a full-time job. So it took a while. I wanted to be a college coach, but when George Fox opened up, I took that opportunity. And I was telling the guys that are listening to this. I went from Westland with my master's plus 30 credit hours coaching football and baseball. I went from about a $52,000 a year salary down to 38.6 my first year at George Fox. And everybody wow. said, how are you going to survive? And I, you know what? You know, the Lord took care of us. Uh, we lived month to month for a while. But uh, one of the things I did say when I took the job of George Fox, if we did really well, and I had some st stipulations with our president uh, at the time, Ed Stevens, that if we did well, that my salary would go up to uh, 45000 within the third year that I was there. And that happened. So it started helping out a little bit. But uh, I just tell everybody, if you want to be successful with anything, you just have to work hard. You have to have an open mind and you have to, you know, you have to be teachable. I mean, I'm 64 years old now and I'm still listening to people and wanting to learn. And, and uh, I think that's the key to being a great coach. If you think you've got everything solved, I know I'm 64. I still don't 
don't know a lot of things. I'm still learning a lot. I saw a thing. Oh my goodness. It's probably when I was 34 years old. Um, a guy came and spoke at our church at Rolling Hills, a, a community church, a church we went to when we lived in Westland. And he had this huge picture of the world up on, on the wall. And he went way to the back of the room. There's probably about 500 people there. And he put his laser beam up and he said, that world's knowledge. And then the laser beam was this little red dot in the world. And he goes, this is how much I know. And I went, oh my gosh, you know, here's a guy who's way smarter than me and admits his vulnerability that he doesn't know a lot. I mean, he obviously is very intelligent. He's a really smart guy, but um, it made me think about just, you know, keep learning, man. I mean, you got to keep growing. You got to keep learning. You got to listen to people and be willing to make adjustments. And, and you know, I, I think that's one of the things that's really helped me as a, as a coach. Talk about that George Fox group. You know, what made those players maybe a little different than the ones you work with now at the Division One level? And, you know, why were they able to drive you to a national title? Um, I think it was 2004. Is that correct? Yeah, we won in all four. Uh, I was there 12 years. We won our conference, I think, nine of the 12 years I was there. Uh, we shared it one year with, with Linfield. Um, I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't care how good a coach you are in college, you better be a good recruiter and you better be relentless. And I spent a lot of hours on recruiting. I mean, I was on the phone. At George Fox, I was probably calling an average of 30 to 40 guys away. Uh, I, I was just relentless. And then uh, just sharing with them, you know, vision and stuff like that. Uh, so I, number one, I, a coach could say he's a great coach. And, and I, I do think, you got to be a great teacher, but you can be the greatest coach in the world. If you don't have talent, you're not going to win. So um, I hate losing. Absolutely hate it. So um, it's just one of those things. I don't like losing. The, you know, my wife beat me last night at, at a, a board game, and I didn't like that. So um, anyhow, um, you know, it's just one of those things that drives me. And, and so we just we, we got a lot of talent. I mean, we had uh, that national championship team in 04. We had seven guys in that team that were drafted anywhere between the sixth and the 19th round. So, um, you know, I think just going out and watching guys and you just got to do a really good job of doing homework and evaluating talent. And we're fortunate, I mean, really fortunate that we got we had the talent that we had. But I went out and watched a lot of those guys play a lot of games before they came to uh, George Fox. So uh, I think just – you know, it's just one of those things that was a work habits thing. And then I think we had, a, we, had a, we had a really good system in terms of how we taught. Because, you know, here at Oregon State, I'd say number one thing that we're really good at is we're a teaching program. I mean, every guy that we've had come here that uh, was drafted out of high school, whatever the amount of money was, they've gotten more money uh, after they've been here for three years and they've signed. Coach, you know, all the levels that you've coached, from the high school, you know, in George Fox and at Oregon State, and all the the most successful teams you've had, whether a championship or not, championship or not, what are some of the similarities that you see? I mean, there's is there is there any similarities between every level of teams on the most successful ones that you've had? Hundred percent. I'll answer that. That's a really simple question for me. Okay. When you recruit guys, I ask them. Well, I don't ask them. I just tell them about our program. And here's, here's the things that are really important to us. Character, 
triumphs over talent any day of the week. You know, I tell guys, we got to recruit talented guys. I mean, talent for me is the foundation of the house. The character is the ceiling. And if the ceiling leaks, that foundation is going to be destroyed. You can get really talented guys in. If they lack character, they'll ruin your program. Absolutely ruin it. And there isn't any one single individual that's more important than your team. So, you know, I'm really clear about character. Second thing is we want guys that work really hard. And hard work starts in the classroom. We haven't had a team GPA since I uh, became the recruiting coordinator here in 2012. We haven't had a team GPA below 325 as a team. And we've won um, the, at the World's College World Series in both 17 and 18. Uh, we won the award for having the highest team GPA. We had a 3-3 in 2017 as a team uh, for the entire team. And in 2018, we had a 3-2-7. So, you know, that, that second piece, I think guys that work hard in the classroom and are consistent are going to be consistent on the field. And then the third thing is we want guys that are selfless. And the last thing is just enjoy the process and have fun. So that, that's what our program's about. And I'm very clear about that when I talk to guys. And if, I just tell them, if you don't buy into those things, this, you're not going to be, uh, it's just not, not going to be a good culture for you. That's what our culture is about. It's about being selfless, working hard, being a high character guy. It's doing the right things on and off the field, whether you're with your girlfriend or you're out in the community. I mean, Corvallis is a town of 60,000 people. And the good news is, that our guys are, everybody knows our guys. I mean, they're, we, well, sometimes we'll have over 100 people waiting after games to get guys' autographs. Wow. The bad news is everybody knows our guys. And if anybody <laughs> does anything wrong out in our community, we get phone calls immediately. So, so yeah, that's, that's, I think though, that's, it's very important when you recruit guys to be very clear about your expectations and you're going to get the right guys and they're going to match your culture and you're going to flourish because of it. Hey, banter fans, this is Kyle Crustangel from Yakima Valley College, and you are listening to PNW Fungo Banner Podcast. Roll Yaks. We're going to roll into our seventh inning stretch portion of this podcast. And, you know, let's keep on with the recruiting train a, a little bit here, and we'll get into hitting later. But, you know, Oregon State, you guys have had some pretty nationally recognized players from the Northwest. Uh, how key has it been to attract the top local talent in our region for you guys? Okay, I, I'm going to tell you right now, and I, I know I'm biased because I'm a Northwest guy, but I will take a Northwest guy over somebody from another area any day of the week because I just think they're tougher. I just think they're tougher guys. So, um, you know, that's it's critical. I mean, we, our recruiting base, and I'll kind of tell you what it is. It's Oregon first. It's Washington second. It's Canada, down in Northern California, third. And then after that, we go outside of that if we have to. But that's that's our focus. We're going we're gonna to work really hard on getting kids from Northern California up through uh, Canada. I just think those guys, they have to play in a little bit more adverse weather. Um, you know, it doesn't determine their, their attitude. I mean, they could care less if it's 55 degrees and sunny or 55 degrees and we have occasional showers they're just used to it so um you know i just think that's and the thing is, is I, I think you do need to focus on your i mean like for oregon for example it's a small population state we only have 3.4 million people in the state of oregon so um you know you, you've got to really do a good job scouting but uh oregon washington have been keys for us and it's a key reason why we've been so successful so yeah 
My follow-up to that coach would be, uh, <clears throat> I think some of the programs in the Northwest have, have really improved since that, you know, that first national championship that you have. So have you found it a little bit more difficult to try to pry those guys away? Um, you know, how has that kind of changed now that you got, you know, some, some good coaches at, at Washington and Washington state, Boise state's got a program now. Is, is anything changed in that? And from that standpoint, or you just fall back to your kind of principles and, and the guys that want to be a part will end up being a part with, with Oregon state. No, I mean, you're, you're dealing with guys that are, I mean, Gary Van Tall, who's the new coach of Boise state, him and I've been friends all the way back to 1991, 92, when he was coaching at Gonzaga when I was at Portland. I have a lot of respect for him. He's a great guy. And, you know, I, I think Washington state, Brian Green, great guy. Um, you know, I mean, Washington's done a great job. I mean, we went to World Series in 18. Washington was there. That's unheard of for Cap two Northwest schools at the College World Series. It was awesome. It's great for the Northwest. And it's, you know, it just says a lot about the players Northwest. I think the biggest problem we've had is that because uh, we have done so well, we get a lot of guys from Vanderbilt all the way across the country they're now recruiting northwest guys because of the success that we've had and other programs have had you know coach that's so important that you know i think that the measure of a man's character goes a long ways um, more, more than actually his words and i, I think that apply you guys for doing that as, as the key component of your guys's process of recruitment i want to ask you real quick is what are the some of the key traits that you're looking for and recruiting your different high school um, players as hitters, or is there, is there something particularly, you know, you're looking at it in a hitter at the high school level, um, possibly looking at moving up to that division one level? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, let me just, uh, I'll start with pitching first and I'll go to hitters and position players. Uh, pitching wise, we're looking at uh, pitchers. By the time they get here, they need to be, if they're right-handed, we'd like them to be anywhere from 89 to 95 plus miles an hour um, with a good secondary pitch and preferably a breaking ball, but sometimes that doesn't happen. If a guy's got an okay breaking ball, you can develop that. If a guy's got a bad breaking ball, I don't know. I, I just, the only person that probably could develop a bad breaking ball is God. We can't do it. So um, anyhow, so you're looking for that. You're looking at preferably a breaking ball, but you know, guy has a really good changeup. That's, that's a big deal too. So you're looking at that, you're looking at quality of pitches because you want guys that are strike throwers. I mean, we've, we've had guys here that have been 94, 95 and never pitched for us because they don't throw strikes. So throwing quality pitches around that velocity. If you're right-handed, if you're left-handed, anywhere from 86 to, to 94 for left-handers. It's kind of the benchmarks we look at. And then, um, and then obviously strike throwing and quality of pitches. Right? And I'll take strike throwing and quality of pitches on the velocity. And then the second thing, uh, position players. Uh, if you're looking at your middle infielders and your outfield, we're looking for guys that are six, eight or better runners. I mean, we just speed, and we, and we recruit speed for defense. I mean, that 2018 team, Madrigal is a six, four, 60 guy. Grenier is a six, four, 60 guy. Our center fielder is a six, five, 60 guy. I mean, just even Trevor Larnick, who's six, three and hit 19 home runs for us, got a six, eight, 60. So uh, speed, you recruit speed, honestly, for defense more than you do offense. So you can have a guy in the Northwest that's a really offensive guy. I mean, he's really good offensively. 
But if, if he's a seven five sixty guy, we're probably not going to recruit him, to be honest with you. Um, and that's kind of what the guys I I told people before. Some of the guys I got at George Fox were guys that could really, really hit, but they just didn't have the velocity, or maybe they had something else. Maybe they had didn't have a great arm or whatever. We got them, and they could have hit at the Pac-12 level. They just couldn't have, couldn't have depended at the Pac-12 level. So, so that's that's kind of the one area uh, spot that we don't look for speed would be catching. I mean, if we got to get a guy that's a really good catch and throw guy. Uh, and then the other thing is, honestly, I don't know very many coaches that have scholarships recruit first baseman. You usually recruit really good athletic guys, and you move them to first base. So, and all of our first basemen we've had here have been guys that probably played other positions in the high school and moved to first base that were really, really good athletes. Because first baseman, besides catchers and pitchers, first baseman handled the ball the most. That's one thing that's really changed at first base is you're seeing a lot more athletic first basemen, a lot more. So, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Oh, it did. It's good. Yeah, I guess my follow-up there, Bales, is that uh, do you guys have key ph- uh, philosophies of, of- – you know, what you want from the makeup of your lineup. You know, I think a lot of people talk about wanting defense and speed in the middle of the field. You're going to give up a little bit of defense at third base for a banger. You know, what's that kind of trade-off that you see from kind of position to position and maybe area to area within your rosters? Tell you what, at third base, I'd rather have a guy that could defend than have a banger that can't defend. I mean, if, if we're feeling below 980 as a team, I'm not happy. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, you, you should, at our level, the, that talented athletes we get, we should be anywhere between 975 and 980 plus every year defensively. There's just no excuse for how talented guys we get for us not to defend that well. So um, I, I know everybody wants a guy that's going to hit 19, 20 home runs, but if you have a third baseman that fields 850 and hits 15 home runs for you, what's he, what's he giving up to get? And the other thing is, if a guy can't run, how many double plays is he hitting into that's killing in- innings for you? So, um, you know, you just, you, I guess it's just a philosophy. You have to decide what you want. I'll take a guy that can run a little bit and really defend at third base over a guy that's going to really bang that can't defend. Are you generally looking at, from that standpoint, then, are you looking at short stops that potentially look like they profile more at the third base position? Um, and do you find that more often than the guy that you see at the high school level um, that is ready to play third base at that level? I mean, I think the best guys on a team are generally in the middle of the field and more often than not at shortstop. But but kind of how do you look at that, that prospect and say, hey, he's a shortstop, but I, I think he can fill that hole at third base for us. Yeah, Kelly, that's a great question, and, and that's basically, I mean, you look at pro ball, and you watch guys who get drafted pretty high, oftentimes they're shortstops, and they move them, and the same thing with us, I mean, we'll, uh, I'll just kind of go back, I mean, I could think about um, just the 17-18 team, you can go back to our 06-07 championship teams, the majority of those guys were shortstops in high school, so... Uh, you want to get the best athletes, then you have to decide uh, what where's the best place for them to play. Because there's a lot of guys that play shortstop in high school that have no shot of playing shortstop at our level. But you just move them because they're really good athletes. So what are some of the questions that you are asking throughout the recruiting process, You know, either to the players, parents, or the coaches? Uh, what is some of the things you really need to know or want to find out about the guys you're about to invest in? 
Yeah, I mean, it goes back to our pillars. Um, you know, is the guy selfless? Is he a, you know, or is he selfish? Uh, we live in a really selfish society today. Let's be honest about that. Everything's about me, 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 from the commercials you watch on television to people talking. And that's not what this life's about. This life's about what you can do for other people. You know, I talked to a guy uh, last night and he said to me, he goes, you're one of the only coaches that have not spent a lot of time talking about all your accomplishments. And I said, I could care less about that. You know, I mean, I've been a national coach of the year, yada, yada. George Fox, I was the coach here at that conference, I think nine out of 12, so what? Who cares? All those things do is gather dust. You know, what you do for people and how you help them develop, become men and help them become great husbands and fathers if they decide to get married or have kids, how to be great community members, that's the most important thing we do. That's more important than winning national championships. And I loved it when we won the championship in 18, it took a while to clear out all the media people that came in our locker room afterwards. But once they cleared out and it was just our team, the first thing Kay said when we came in together as a team, he goes, guys, you won this championship because of your resilience and your character. And he goes, if we didn't have high character on this team, we would have never won it. He goes, that's the reason why we won it. And I, it was awesome because that's exactly why we won that national championship because the high character of our team. I know we had, we had some guys who were really talented, but we had some guys in that team. Uh, Jack Anderson's an example. He's a great guy who played a ton for us that didn't even get drafted and is going to uh, physical therapy school at Regis University, which is one of the top physical therapy schools in the country. Jack's every bit as successful as Nick Madrigal or Caden Greener or Trevor Lardick, who are all first-round picks. He's just going a different avenue. And he, he got the uh, – for I'm just as proud of Jack as he got for the Pac-12, the male athlete that got money to go on to graduate school. That's awesome. I mean, that, what a great accomplishment for Jack. And he was a great student. So, and he was a big time part of our program, even though he wasn't one of the superstars. He was a, a key. And another guy is, is uh, Michael Grettler, who chose to come back his senior year. And, and I might be wrong. I think Michael turned down his junior $160,000 to uh, come back to Oregon State as senior because he was a 3738 student in, in the business department. And Michael and I talked. I called him up. I know Case talked to him too, but I said, Michael, if you sign, why would you sign? He goes, well, I can get a new car. And I said, come on, man. You can get a new car anytime. If you're going to sign because you want to get a new car, that's a stupid reason for the sign. And we had a long talk about, you know, his odds and his chances of making it professionally. And I gave him all the statistical information I get um, from different people. And, and he decided to come back. And I'm telling you, there's no way, absolutely no way we win the national championship for my, if it wasn't for Michael Grattler being a part of it. Yeah, I thought he was the key reason why we won it. It wasn't the first rounders. It wasn't all of our guys. I think we had six guys drafting the first five rounds off of that team, seven. I thought Michael Grattler was the reason why we won it. I don't think we won it without him. You know, you talk about that, Coach, and a couple of years ago I saw you guys speak at the Portland Clinic. And it was it was a definitely a time in my coaching career where I was trying to, like, figure things out and trying to search for a better way. And it was your comment, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you said that you guys, one of your biggest accomplishments at Oregon State was that you haven't had a player get a divorce yet. Yeah. And that changed my – completely blew my, my mind. I was like, that is the coolest in how – to be a coach, you know, and what our real purpose is. Gosh, you know, it's, uh, 
great comment. I think that's still accurate. I, I can tell you right now in the 13, 12, 13 years I've been here, and I don't know if any of my guys at George Fox that I had have got, have gotten divorced yet because I talked to quite a few of them still. But um, I think just developing guys with character to learn how to persevere through tough times because let's be honest. I mean, I've been married for 43 years and, and I love my wife to death. She is my best friend. Um, she's, I'm JV and she's varsity, to be honest with you. Uh, I mean, she's, she's all Pac-12 and I'm all nothing. Um, I just think the, you know, you make a commitment to something and you stick through it no matter what goes on. And I mean, I was fortunate, my wife and I, when I was 24 and she was 23, we decided we, we can make our marriage great or we can make it average, but we're stuck with each other. So we decided to make our marriage great. And, I mean, some of the lessons that we've learned, Case was the same way. Uh, we've we've been vulnerable in sharing with our guys both struggles and, you know, the rewards from just, you know, life. I mean, life's about persevering through trials. And I'll just give you an example. My wife's uh, some of the weirdest things have happened to my poor wife. She's had 23 surgeries since we were married, and she has the most positive attitude of any human being I've ever been around in spite of the daily trials that she goes through with constant pain, uh, she still is very positive. She's just an unbelievable inspiration for me. And I know part of that is because she's a committed Christian and she just loves the Lord. So um, anyhow, I mean, those are the things that we try to pass on to our guests. You know, to add to that coach, I, I think that in life, you know, positive people like being around positive people basically you know i mean it's it's just we live in a negative society and everything it's terrible you know and just thinking about this whole covid scenario you know i mean it doesn't look good i mean we, we just find out you know here that we're probably going to be extended you know in our area possibly to the end of june you know and it's like man you could really look at life as a drag but it it's a it's all about perspective you know waking yep. up every day deciding how you're going to live it and and then others will see that and want to be attracted to that and i think that has to say a lot about your guys's program i wanted to follow up with you're talking about your guys and and with good measure of character do, do you see that with your guys in the community with you with the fans with maybe different events that they're involved with i mean do you feel or see that what you guys teach in the locker room or on the field portray into the community there at oregon state yeah, you know, that's a great question. One of the coolest things when it does happen is like, uh, let's say we fly down to, when we flew to Mississippi State this year, one of the stewardesses uh, came up to me and said, your, your guys are, have, are the best gentlemen we've ever had on our flight out of all the college teams we've ever taken places. Stuff like that. Um, staying in a hotel and, you know, we, we always have a deal you know, leave a place in a better place than where you, where you found it. Don't, be, you know, you get pizza for your room, take it and go throw it in the garbage, you know, when you're done with it, with it, you know. We've done room checks before to make sure they're clean. I, Case started something I never thought about doing, but I thought it was great. It's sometimes you tell our team, put on your door, uh, no need for maid service because you're going to clean your room up and make it spotless so that the maids don't have to work that day. I mean, it's just, Little stuff like that just make a huge difference. And it goes back to just being selfless and 
and making other people more important. So I'm making people feel valued. I, mean, I think our guys, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, your players are such nice young men um, in the community. I mean, before this all hit, we do stuff like go to retirement centers and talk. I mean, I, there's probably about myself, Mitch, Canham, our new head coach, and about eight of our players went to retirement center, probably about maybe two weeks before this hit, uh, just to spend the day with them, uh, getting involved in the community and the grade schools, uh, just all the stuff that our guys need to do to make other people more important than themselves. So, yeah, it's a big piece of it. So you guys have the band now with, with recruiting. Um, I think just yesterday extended through July 31st. Um, how, how have you guys kind of adjusted your recruiting model? I, I know personally, I'm sure you're this way is, is you want to see a guy in person, you know, you can see video, you can take recommendations from, from coaches and stuff like that, but we, we want to be able to see it in action. Um, so maybe have you guys, altered maybe the, the way that you make decisions on guys or, or how have you best navigated that process right now you know trying to either stay ahead or maybe you know that you're going to be a little bit behind and so is everyone else what's what's kind of your mindset there right now that's a great question and we we're like you kelly i mean i, I want to see guys play um we would never offer a scholarship to a guy that we haven't seen in person uh, we've been fortunate i mean and i don't know if it's partly because uh, guys are a little worried, but we've had quite a few guys commit to us since this. But they're all they're all guys we're seeing, uh, and people don't understand. Um, you know, we're part of a Power Five conference. We're done with our twenty class. We're within a, a picture or two of being done with our twenty-one class. Uh, the twenty-two class uh, we're close to being finished with. We need to capture in that class, and we're just getting started with our twenty-three class. So. Um, the best way for me to explain recruiting is that, uh, you know, we're looking for a guy that just absolutely sticks out. I mean, he's got to be, a, for us to offer a guy a scholarship early, he's got to be a really talented athlete and then meet all of our other parameters that, we, that I've talked to you about. So, um, you know, it has slowed some stuff down, but it has for everybody. We're on the same boat and, you know, you go back to COVID thing. I mean, I've, can't tell you times I've said to our guys, every day you wake up, attitude is choice. You choose to be happy. You choose to bitch and whine and complain about the situation. I have no control over it. Why should I complain about it? I'm not happy the NCAA kicking us back to July 31st. The reason why I'm not is because it was last Wednesday when they told us that it was going to be until June 30th, and they go another week, and they decide till June July 31st. And I don't know what the, that, the reason for that was. Um, I speculate it has something to do with coach went out and got really sick and died. The NCAA is worried about getting sued, but uh, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I have no control over it. I'm not, I wasn't happy about it when they made that decision last yesterday. Again, I mean, it's like, come on, man. A week ago, you decided June 30th. A week later, you decided June or July 31st, especially when this is flattened out. And I don't know. The other thing I, I'm going to tell you about the COVID thing, and this is my personal opinion, if this had happened 30 years ago, you think it could be shut down? I don't. I think it's social media. It's the sky is falling. The sky is falling. Everything's negative. Oh, my gosh. And I'm not taking away. I mean, it's sad people have died from this, but um, 
you know, I can give you a lot of say. I mean, I grew up when President Kennedy got shot, Robert Kennedy's brother got shot, uh, Martin Luther King was killed, Vietnam War, Kent State Massacre. I, I can tell you all kinds of stuff that I grew up dealing with. And in 1968, 69, we had a major flu epidemic. And I think there was 200 million people in the United States at the time, and 102,000 people died, which would equate to probably about 170,000 now with our population. And I was 12 years old, and I didn't even know about it. So, you know, I, I just think, I'm just my personal opinion. I think this is way blown out of proportion. And it's funny because the state of Texas, they've opened pretty much opened everything up, and they're not getting increased, a lot of increased cases. Um, I think it has a lot to do with the state you live in in terms of who's running the state instead of terms of what's going on. So that's just my personal opinion. But I'm a conservative, so... Annie, I'll leave it at that. Well, I'm totally, I'm with you, Coach, 100. <laughs> percent um, And I'm in not... Oregon. We've had 4,000 cases. Yeah. As of today, we've had 149 deaths. So if you take 4,000 divided by 3.4 million people and see what you get, we, it's like a 0.0015 percent chance of getting this. And, and I'm not taking away. We don't have a chance of getting them, but we need to start leveling. I mean, come on, let's go. Well, that's Let's been the biggest, the that's been the biggest message to my guys is like, Hey, exactly what you said about, can we can we can control what we can control in our happiness and all this deal. And I know that if it wasn't for baseball, there's been a few days for me, it's like, gosh, you know, it was kind of beat down, but it wasn't for the, you know, the, the things I've learned across the way. And I think the other big thing that, that what we've really tried to teach our players is learn where you're getting your information. That is so huge today. <laughs> yep. Depends on what you're watching. Yes, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Let's. Yeah, I, I agree with that comment. Absolutely. Uh, I think we could have a whole podcast on that conversation, to be honest with you. Because I'm with <laughs> you. You guys got to feel like I told my wife about a week ago. I said, I, Do you remember Groundhog's Day, that movie? Yeah. <laughs> Bill Murray. I feel yeah. like I'm living That's Groundhog's great. Day. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the so, same song's coming on every morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've, done, we've done a lot of Zoom meetings with our players, and they've been really good. Uh, we've done Zoom meetings four days a week, and then on Fridays we do uh, academic checks and check-ins. We each have are responsible for six or seven guys for academics. Uh, so I, I'll, I'll call my guys I'm responsible for tomorrow morning. But uh, let's see, Zoom meetings, going for walks with my wife, lifting weights at home. I've got a five ten and, and a, a two and a half pound weight. That's all I got. She can't buy weights anyway. So I'm doing 50. I'm taking the five and 10, combining my hands and doing what I can as many times as I can to try to maintain my weightlifting stuff. I mean, it's just hilarious, but it is what it is. Again, we have no control over that. We have 100% control over how we, how we respond to it. So, Absolutely. Anyhow. Get the duct tape out. Get those things wrapped together. Yes, I, I should get the duct tape. <laughs> great comment. <laughs> So let's, I should do that. But some, there's some things I do with tens too that have to do with rotator cuff stuff. So now I have to take the duct tape. Right, off. right. Well, Eric, Eric might be able to use some farm help. I know. Yeah, we can. <laughs> We're about to get yeah, real busy. Some bales here. around. You, yeah, you're cutting. Right bales now. pushing bales. Close. I think we got a thing here. You know, when I was a sophomore in high school, I went out and bucked bales, and nobody told me. So I wore first. I go. I wear a short sleeve shirt. Oh, oh my goodness. Yeah. My arms were cut yeah. to pieces yeah. and it's so bad and all the guys were laughing nobody said a word to me i had no idea i wore a long sleeve shirt the next day even though it was probably 90 degrees outside oh yeah 
a good heads up on those things is always much appreciated. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that, work nice friends. Uh... Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's break down some hitting, you know, what are some of the key components of the swing that are, are really crucial to your teachings of your players? Yeah. Um, for our guys, and we get a lot of talented guys in, but um, unlocking and sequential unlocking. Uh, Pre-pitch rhythm and getting down on time, unlocking sequence. And that sequence can sometimes be out of order. An example that would be like, uh, you know, I'm talking about the back cap all the way through the hands. There's basically four or five things that have to happen. Some guys like... Uh, for example, Martinez that plays for the Red Sox, he unlocks out of order, but he's such a great hitter. He gets with it versus, uh, and he's not a, I wouldn't call Martinez a loose mover, if you know what I mean by that. Uh, Trout's not a loose mover. Uh, Betts, Betts is extremely loose. So, you know, every every guy's different in terms of their body build and their mobility and their, and the, all the other things that go with that. But the, the key is pre, you got to have pre-pitch rhythm and move. I don't know what that means to you guys but for me um that major league average pre-pitch rhythm movement back and forth pre-pitch is, is 68 uh, per minute which is exactly the same average as a major league player's heartbeat on average so some guys move faster than others some guys you know it just depends but you gotta have some pre-pitch movement little or a lot and then the second thing is that stride foot's got to be down when the ball's a minimum of 30 feet away or you will not unlock in sequence some of the balls you see hooked about, you know, 200 feet to the right, and you think, oh, my gosh, that's a good swing. That's, that's not unlocking sequence. They Their hands started their swing. Once the barrel gets out ahead of the hands, it slows bat speed down, and they end up hooking a ball. When if they would have got down on time, if they are left-handed, that ball might have went in the right center. If they're right-handed, it might have went in the left center. So um, those, are, those are things we look at. Stabilizing posture. Um, just – you know, the, uh, if you if you use and we have quite a few tools that we're very fortunate to use, but blast motion, uh, K vest, wrap soto, um, you know, track man, uh, hit tracks. We have all those things here, which we're very fortunate because we have the money to get all those. Uh, but staying connected is key to having uh, connectedness because if you don't unlock and sequence, your hands get away from your body and you, and you don't stay connected. So those are, those are things we look at. Now, obviously, guys recruited at our level, they all have uh, pretty decent bat quickness and bat speed. And I'll take bat quickness from point A to point B contact over bat speed any day of the week. I see all these guys swinging, and they talk about their 95-mile-an-hour swings, and their swings are long. And, you know, I remember – remember, guys, remember a guy named Pete Incavilla that played for Oklahoma State? He had 48 home runs as junior and was drafted really high. He had big-time bat speed, but his bat quickness was not good. And he struck out a ton and didn't stand, last very long in the major leagues. Now I always tell people, when Pete Cavillia hit, once he reached higher levels, even a blind squirrel gets an acorn once in a while, he'd hit some home runs, but he struck out a ton. And that's why he didn't last. So you take a guy like Albert Pujols, who has, you know, his bat speed is just a little bit above major league average. But his bat quickness from point A to point B contact is elite. And that's why he's lasted so long and he's done so well. He's not going to hit 480 foot home runs, but he's a great hitter and he uses the whole field. And when the ball gets out by 10 feet or gets out by 50 feet, it's still out. So anyhow, that's, that's some of the things we look at. 
I think quickness wise, I know a lot of that fast twitch stuff, you know, people talk about it being innate, but is there specific things you do for a guy that maybe be struggling and in, in back quickness to try to help out that area? Is it exposing him to different drills where he has to learn some things, but or any of those, is that skill something that can be taught, I guess, for you? You know, Kelly, if a guy gets down on time and his lower half starts to swing and he unlocks sequentially, he'll be short to contact. His hands will be the last thing that come. And they should be the last thing that comes. Your, your body delivers your hands. So if they take care of that, then their back quickness is going to be what it is based on how God made them and, and how they're built and how much they have in terms of fast twitch versus slow twitch muscle fibers, you know, how, what their mobility is, uh, how fluid they are, you know, the mobility meaning, you know, through the hips and things like that. Cause we have some guys that uh, we have, that have mobility issues that still have. And we do a lot of testing on mobility and flexibility and things like that. And then we come up with game plans to help guys out. But, some guys are just tighter movers than other guys. And like I said, example, I, the two extremes would be Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. Mike Trout's a tighter mover, but he's the best player in baseball right now. Mookie Betts is extremely fluid and flexible, and he's a great player too. So, you know, you just go with what you got and use the information to help guys make the most out of their talent. Yeah, I think Kenny's kind of a unique thing. It's kind of like how what makes people tick, you know, we, we really don't have a full understanding of the brain and how it operates. And I know sciences are always coming up with new innovations of trying to figure out pretty much the creation of man and, and, and kind of pinpoint things. But, you know, it, it's, it, it's so true. I mean, one guy is not going to exactly hit the same way as this other guy. You know, I have, I see it with our, there at Tri-C Prep, you know, I got some guys are getting in the more of a preload stance. Others, can't do that. It's not effective. They roll over quite a bit, you know, but if they get yep. some of those guys that work on that preload, they can drive the piss out of the ball and, and work that gap to the gap shot. But, you know, it, it's that real unique part of the game that is always, you know, really changing. You know, you're talking about the different technologies and, and the kind of the innovations of the games that helped us along, but, you know, it, it's always going to be changing. It's always a new area that we're always going to try to have to really improve on and so I want to ask you coach what does a, a cage rotation and, and your BP rotation look like on a, a generic practice day for you guys yeah uh, I'll just kind of start up at, uh, we have a place called McAlexander Fieldhouse which I call it the blue collar work, work area it was a building that was built in 1908 and it's been remodeled it's really sweet where our weight room is but our, our hitting areas but I, I love that area up there it's awesome just because it's really all it is blue collar. I mean, it's not <laughs> super, super, it's nice, but it's not super fancy. So we, we do a lot of stuff up there from, you know, using, we use the machines up there a lot. We do a variety of things. Um, and I won't get into detail all the stuff we do because we do a lot of different things every day. And then we'll always have uh, a prep movement area uh, that has to do with just the things I was talking about, um, you know, unlocking sequence, staying connected, all those things. Uh, when we're on the field, we always have, whether it's on the field or we use them upstairs, McAlexander, every day we use blast motion. Uh, that's just huge for us to gather information. On the field, we use Rapsodo. That's huge for us gathering information. So we gather as much information we can to help guys out. And, and you know as well as I do, 
you know, what you see with your eye and what you see on videotape or the information you gather with Repsitol or, or hit tracks or, or with, uh, with the blast motion sensor, some things you think might not be true. The thing I'll tell you, what you said is every person is uniquely molded. There isn't any one person on the face of the earth since the beginning of time is the same. We're all different. I mean, we all have different DNA, which is crazy to me, but it's the truth. And so you're right. I mean, there's some things, I would call them absolutes that guys have to do, but everybody has it, everybody does it differently because nobody's the same. So, uh, so we'd have that. We'd have, usually have a bunt station. Uh, and we have a coach there at the bunt station because, you know, if we have guys, we, let's say we have a guy that's a six, five, 60 guy, he better, and, but he's not a power guy. Well, the tools in his toolbox better be a drag and push. He better add that to his toolbox. So that's going to make him a more complete player. Um, Stephen Kwan's a great example of that. He was a fifth round pick for us as a center fielder. I don't know if Stephen had three home runs for us the entire time he was here, but uh, he knew how to drag and push and handle a bat, and he ends up being a fifth-round pick. And his junior year, he walked 48 times when he struck out nine. So their piece of that is, and we do this on the field, you you can only hit about eight inches of the plate. That's your that should be your focus. You can't cover seven ten. But the good news is pitchers miss in the major leagues. They miss by an average of four and a half to five inches every pitch. So if you're patient enough, you're going to get a pitch in your zone all the way up to two strikes. And you have to, whatever you teach two strike-wise, you teach. But if, if guys can learn to manage the zone, and let's be honest, the only person who hits a really good slider is God. Nobody else hits a good slider, including professional baseball players. The good news is, is that pitchers miss a lot with their off-speed pitch. Everybody can hit a fastball. So you're, you're fastball ready. You adjust to other pitches. But try to get pitches in a zone that you can drive a baseball. So we use orange. I take an orange plate every year, and I uh, 17 inch those plates that are plastic, cut them up, paint them orange, and our guys move those according to where their their areas are that they hit really well. And we call it controlling the zone. And so we manage the strike zone. That's that's the key to hitting. You got to manage the strike zone, especially at our level. But the pitchers we see, I mean, on a given weekend, we might not see a pitcher on a weekend that's below 92 miles an hour. So we better be able to manage the zone, eliminate pitches. That's another key thing. Um, when you're facing a guy, if he's struggling or he struggled and you have that information, we had to get a lot of information you high school guys don't get. The guy throws his, his breaking ball 32% of the time for strikes or 38% of the time, whatever. We're not gonna honor that pitch till two strikes. We're gonna sit fastball. Uh, if a guy has a great changeup, but he doesn't throw in the strike zone, we're going to changeups have a tendency to dive and sink or, or run. So we're going to hunt elevation and look for a pitch up in the zone. You know, I'll just Garrett Cole when he was at UCLA. Case and I talked about it. We decided, guy's 95 to 100 miles an hour. You can only honor one pitch and hit that guy. So we sat fastball the entire at bat, including sat fastball two strikes. And he never beat us. And I thought it was uh, great that, that we came up with that plan. Um, another example is Marco Gonzalez, who was at Gonzaga. Marco's got, he's with the Seattle Mariners now. He's got a plus-plus changeup. So what we told our right-handers, because Marco would throw a changeup away, he had an average breaking ball at the time. He'd throw a changeup away and fastball into our righties. So the last time we faced Marco, we just said, we're going to ignore anything away for right-handed. 
We're going to sit on the inside pitch. It's going to be a fastball. So sit fastball ready, sit inside. And then with our left-handers, we said, we're going to look for something out over the plate. Don't swing at anything inside because uh, he has a tendency to throw a fastball breaking ball left-handers. And we scored seven runs and had 11 hits off him in four innings. So you have to come up with a game plan against guys based what, on what they do. And Marco Gonzalez could tell you verbally he's throwing his change up. And if you're a right-handed hitter, even the major leagues, I'm firmly convinced you're not going to hit it yet. That's how good his changeup is. It's stupid good. So why honor it? How do you train on a daily basis to – you come up with plans, and we all come up with plans and tell them. And, and a lot of that changes in games too. You know, you get the information, and all of a sudden – what the guy's doing in the game is completely different than what might be on tape. But, but how do you prepare in a practice setting to, to allow guys to be able to adjust on the fly? You know, is it exposing them to some really tough drills? Is it a lot of machine work? You know, how do you really expose guys in a, in a practice setting to, to allow them to have confidence to be able to make those adjustments when needed in a game? Guys, that's such a great question. And I'm telling you right now, the best thing you can do in practice is, hey, everybody wants to do feel good BP, right? What good does it do? What good, you know, I, I know flips have a purpose. They do. And feel good BP at times is good too. But here's the deal. When you've got the guys on the field, make them challenging. Make them challenging to the point where it makes guys uncomfortable. Because that's how they get better. And I think it should be random too. I mean, we do a lot of random stuff on, on uh, in practice on the main field. It's not scripted. Sometimes we'll script, but most of the time it's random. Because when it's random, it causes guys to think more. And I, I and I think the challenge part, I mean, make it hard. I'm, I, I'm telling you, in 18, we did something. Case and I sat down, we talked. And we did something that we hadn't done in the past. We started using machines more. And we started making it really hard. I remember talking like 95 mile an hour fastball, 87 mile an hour, 86 mile an hour sliders and stuff like that. We were on fire at the end of the year. And we used machines side by side. We did a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, opposite side BP with machines. And uh, Mitch plays in the same thing. Uh, we do a lot of challenge, challenging stuff on the field. But I, I think it was a game changer for us in 18. I do. I, I I think it really made a difference for us offensively. So, yeah, I, I think uh, the more challenge you can make it to a point where guys, they almost feel like they're failing more than they're succeeding until they adjust to it and then they start succeeding. And the second thing is making it random. I think those two things are keys. So throughout the, the process of a season, you know, you guys play – longer season than obviously than us high school guys, but you know, maintaining your hitters throughout the season, what's one of the keys for you guys for that? And, and one of the things I really want to know is, you know, when we have our guy that, you know, he might be killing it all year long and then we're getting close to that playoff time and a little speed bump might happen for him. You know, when you have guys do that, what's some of the keys for you to get them back on track without making them overthink things? Yeah. I'm going to answer that in reverse first. Okay. <laughs> the first one, the second question you asked me, Michael Conforto in 2014, and I, I think I'm right, but I think he was the eighth pick in the draft. And the last three weeks of the season, he was terrible. I mean, horrible. Uh, he just got in a slump and had a hard time getting out. Our fans gave him a standing ovation in the regionals when he got a base hit single. So 
you know, everybody goes through time periods like that. The one thing I love is uh, Case kept going up and saying, Michael, when you go to bed tonight, you're going to be the best hitter in the country. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to be the best hitter in the country. And this, this is the same guy that we were playing Oregon. And I don't remember who was thrown, but his left-handed pitcher might have been a Anderson. I don't remember, but it was a guy that was, ended up being an All-American. And Mike's second at bat, he hit a ball off the right center wall. His third at bat, he hit a ball off the left center wall. Both of them sound like sonic booms when they hit our wall. And I looked at one of our freshman guys, and I said, you know you're, 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 you're watching the best hitter in the country. And amateur baseball, flat out, Michael Comporto is the best hitter in the country. And that guy had 370s, a freshman, had 76 RBIs. So, so, you know, everybody goes through stretches where things aren't going well. I think the key is, as a coach, is just pump them full of confidence. I love what Case said to him every day. Michael, go to bed at night. You're going to be the best hitter in the country. You wake up tomorrow, you're going to be the best hitter in the country. So, and he's still ended up being a really high pick, even though he probably hit about 130 his last 10 games for us that year. So, um, you know, uh, Derek Jeter, in a Sports Illustrated article, and I think it's back in 2011-12, he went through a stretch where he was 0 for 30. And I know high school kids don't have as many at-bats as Derek Jeter does. But the Sports Illustrated guy said, for the first time in your career, you're in a slump. And Derek Jeter goes, no, I'm not. He goes, we haven't gotten a hit in your last 30 at-bats. And Derek Jeter said this, and this was awesome. He said, you watch, at the end of the year, on a pit between 310 and 315, just like I do every year. And that year I ended up hitting 311. So it's just a matter of perspective and being really process-oriented and believing in yourself and having confidence in who you are. So, um, you know, that's that that part there. What was the first question you asked? Because I answered the second one first. I got to go back because that, that, that got me going. That was a good one, Coach. Uh, <laughs> uh, just maintaining hitters throughout the season. Yeah. I think that's an individual thing. And the reason why I said, let's say uh, Nick Madrigal. We have uh, on the field pregame, we're going to hit six rounds pregame for our starters. And Nick, after three rounds, goes, Bales, I'm good. I don't need to take any more. Let him go. He's got his three rounds and he's he, he had a pre-practice routine that he did off the team, some other stuff. If he's good after three rounds, let him go. Other guys want to hit more. Um, some guys you have to tell them, hey, knock it off. You're hitting too much because they're, you know, they're just, they look like they have, they're tired when they swing. So it's some guys you have to pull the reins back on. Other guys know what they're doing. Nick Matter was one of the hardest workers I've ever been around. But if Nick ever said to me when we were doing BP, hey, Bales, I've, I'm good after three rounds. Okay, Nick, go grab your glove, go play defense. I mean, you know, you just got to know your guys. I think one of the mistakes people make is they think more and more and more is better, and it's not. It's the I'll, I'll tell you right now, uh, I call it aerobic hitting. I'm just swinging the swing. There's got to be purpose to what you're doing. And so uh, I think there has to be purpose in your rounds, and I also think you need to treat each guy individually in terms of what they need. Some guys need more than others do. And some guys you have to say, that's enough, you're done. You don't need another round. So the thing Nick would do, the flip side is he was the one more guy. One, you know, we're going rounds of four, for example, uh, drag butt and four swings. And Nick would get his four swings, and he maybe didn't hit the fourth one good, and he'd go, one more coach, one more coach. So I call him Mr. One More. 
when he was hit because he'd always go one more coach. So yeah, yeah, you got those guys too that within a round want more and you have to shut them down too because again, I'll take quality and focus and situational stuff over Roby Kidding any day of the week. Yeah, one thing you struck a chord with there, and, and I know we we've experienced it a little bit at our place, but um, you're always going to seem to have that one superstar guy. And I think, I think Oregon state's been kind of the testament to that. I know you've had a lot of really good players about it. Your 18 team could really hit up and down. Um, but that one superstar guy always gets treated a little bit differently. You know, you talked about how much time and effort you guys put into game planning a Garrett Cole or Marco Gonzalez, all aces of staff, you know, and, and, maybe you take a little bit off the other guys because you feel like your guys can handle it. But, you know, I, I was with an unnamed team uh, playing against Conforto uh, down at your place. And there was a lot of effort put into that week to try to keep him at bay. You know, it was a four man outfield. It was extra shifts. It was all these things that get put into trying to stop that one guy within a lineup, you know? So how, how have you seen guys, and you talked about it a little bit, but how have you seen guys kind of manage that pressure, knowing that they're the one key guy within within the lineup when teams are doing things left and right that are kind of keeping them confused? That's, that's, a, that's a really good question, Kelly. An example would be Adley Rutschman. I mean, last year, Adley Rutschman was the man. I, mean, I, I don't know how many times he walked. I should know that. It seemed like he walked about three times every game for us. But I'll give you an example of that. They were up at the University of Washington. I think it was the Saturday game. It might have been the Sunday game. No, it was a Saturday game. And uh, we're up seven to six. There's two outs. The bases are loaded. And Nate Yeske says to me, he goes, Bales, what would you do in this situation? I said, bases are loaded, two outs. I'm throwing to him. He goes, I'm not. I'm walking him. And I said, you're telling me you're going to walk Adley to make the score eight to six to get the next guy. He goes, yeah, I am. And the very next pitch, Adley hit off the wall and cleared the base. And Nate looked and he goes, Bales, I told you so. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think for Adley, it, I, I just kept telling him all year long last year, you know, you don't win with just one guy and just take your walks. If you're going to get walked, take them. Because, on you know, there's guys behind us, behind you that can add. So even though he was the best hitter in college baseball last year. Um, so, you know, you got to take your walks and you get them. And, and that second thing is when you get a pitch to hit, you better not mess it because you might not get another pitch the rest of the bat. So, and he was really good at that. He's a really talented baseball player and very good at managing strikes on. But you just got to tell your, your key guy. Got to be patient. And I'd say that's kind of what happened to Mike and Ford. Because Mike's Conforto was really good at managing the strike zone. And I think, you know, from the time I got to Oregon State, I, Case left. Case was very good about teaching strike zone management and stuff like that. And Mitch is really good with it, too, because it's a key because we face so many great pitchers. But I would say Michael kind of got away from when he got into the slump, he got away from managing strikes on. He got a little too anxious instead of just take your walks when you got to take your walks. There's nine guys on your team. Uh, On-base percentage is the most important thing in baseball. Most important statistic off, I, I'm from an offensive viewpoint. Um, I can sit here and I can show you tons of statistical information that shows that teams that have a, almost a close to a one-one ratio of walks plus hit by pitches divided by strikeouts 
are the teams that are going to win our conference almost every year. So, because everybody has good pitching, everybody defends. That's one of the things that's kind of a separator. Well, Coach, this has been awesome. Uh, we truly appreciate you coming on with us today. We know you got you got to get out of here, but uh, thank you so much for joining us. And just uh, my mind, I'm so excited to break this thing down. Hey, can I say one more thing before I leave? Absolutely. Because this is, I think this is really important because I coached high school for 17 years. I did George Fox for 12 years, and this is my 13th year at Oregon State. And I'm just telling everybody that uh, make the big time where you are. You know, uh, make the most out of where your feet are planted and, and, and do a great job because I think sometimes guys, uh, and I, I was there when I was younger, you know, you want to, you want to coach at higher levels. When I was at uh, the University of Portland, I got, I had an outstanding salary of $4,000 as an assistant coach at Portland. And our, uh, superintendent told me you got to make a decision either get a full-time job at Portland or you have to come back to Westland and coach and that was in 91 92 and so I went back to Westland and coached and honestly after you've been at the big one love you go back to high school it's hard and I read a book uh, Frosty Westering wrote a book he was the head football coach at um, Pacific Lutheran at the time he wrote a book that was maybe about half an inch thick that said make the big time where you are and I read that book it totally changed my attitude I thought I owe it to the guys I'm working with right now to give them my best and I owe it to, I owe it to my guys to have the best attitude and make the most out of a situation and uh, like I said at the very beginning I'm a firm believer in Proverbs 16 9 which says in his heart man makes plans but God determines his path and so wherever you're at make the most out of it and, and be a great teacher, be a great learner, grow, and wherever that takes, that's where it takes you. So make the most out of wherever you're at. That's a perfect way to end this one. That That's great, Coach. We really thank you so much, and we really appreciate you coming on with us today. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you. We'll be back with Jason and Kelly in the bullpen to wrap this thing up. All right, Banner fans, we're in the bullpen to wrap this another episode up. Uh, an awesome interview with Coach Pat Bailey of Oregon State. And guys, what was your takeaway from this? Yeah, I think um, we could we could sit here and break down everything because there's there's really a lot loaded in this episode. But I'll just say on the one thing that that I take away from from Coach Bailey is is just how set he is in his principles. I mean, everything that he talks about is is very specific. You know, that 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 man has, has spent a lot of time in his life. He talked about starting at, I think, 25 when he said it was his first head job. Um, now, 40 years later, he is very specific um, with the, the reason why he does things. Um, and, and a lot of it's people-based. You know, all your, your philosophies on skills and, and recruiting and stuff like that is going to change over time as, as kids change, as technology changes. Um, if you adapt, you stay in it. And obviously he's done a great, great job at that because he talked about some of the technology things that weren't around 40 years ago. Um, but the, the biggest thing and the reason why he's stuck and been really successful in, in what he does is, is just how, how good he is to the core, you know, as far as, as, as raising human beings, 
as wanting guys to to be great in, in any avenue that they choose and and on the field just understanding that um, you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, and and the guys that are strong in character are going to be able to bounce back. So um, just having that cool, calm, kind of collected personality, you know it's the same way that, that, that he is in the dugout with his guys. And, you know, yeah, he's been an assistant for a long time, but that's honestly one of those traits that, that you know, allows guys to continue to move forward is they have that calmness to them. You know, as head coaches, we, we get really fiery and we get into the moment about, you know, the specific thing, but, you know, having someone with perspective there is, is probably a great reason why that team has been so successful because he, he's got that calming feel to him um, and is able to ground guys back to their, their baseline um, when needed. So um, obviously someone we'd all love to, to be a part of and, 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 and be around as a player, as a, as another coach on staff, but um, just a guy that's really grounded super well in his principles. Yeah, Kelly, um, you know, I think we see this common thing, and I know you brought it up a few podcasts before, but it, it's, it's um, you know, passion, you know, it, it, it's, it's uh, measure, you know, character, it, it's, it's drive, it's all those aspects of, of success, and, and if you, you know, I, of course, you look at programs that are very successful, you know, and Oregon State's had a lot of success, I mean, it's a true measurement of what's a, up front, the leadership, and I, I think that what I take from today is, you know, character is so huge, and I, I think as society, we take that away, um, you know, it's all about me, it's all about what I can achieve, you know, I, I need help until I get what I need to get accomplished, and then I'm off doing, you know, my own thing, you know, I, I think that generosity goes a lot farther than, than championships in my book, you know, I, I think that if you can help your neighbor out uh, or a friend, um, that's an everlasting impact that will not only change you as a person, but it could change uh, them. And, you know, and that's the thing is I think we, we don't realize a lot of times as coaches that, yeah, we have our 20, you know, 40 guys are, are playing and coaching underneath us, um, you know, but they're, you know, those eyes are on us, but it's all the, the outsiders as well. You know, we got, you know, uh, people in the stands or just people in our community, you know, um, even in a, in a town of only 60,000 um, there at Corvallis, you know, those people are, are watching the, the, uh, the way, you know, Bales and, and his staff and then his team are carrying themselves. And I, I think about here in the Tri-Cities, you know, we have close to, you know, 300,000 people that live in this area. Um, you know, and it, it sounds like a lot of people, but there's people who are always paying attention that are watching. And so, you know, I, I really think that's huge. I think as coaches that if we can really focus on, you know, those elements of the game, um, you know, it, it's a true testament of um, us as, you know, as an individual, but also the, you know, our program. And, and that's the thing is, is that guys, we are, as coaches, are making, you know, uh, developing men for for life, really. Um, not every guy's going to get that opportunity to play on. You know, we we you know, it's just it's tough to get to that next level. So it was it was really good to hear uh, Coach Bales talk about those things. And I think there's a lot of things that um, you know I'm going to continue to apply to our our staff and our you know program as well as we continue to move forward and and try to as much of uh, success on and off the field as we can.
Yeah, and I'll touch on the hitting part of it a little bit. You know, <clears throat> not having robots, no one accepting the fact that not every kid's the same, and and it's up to you to to be able to coach each kid through certain situations of it, and and not overthinking it, and not overcomplicating the swing. It's the hardest thing to do in sports, and to be able to teach it that way. And I love that you know when we asked him about when a guy's rolling and then you hit that speed bump throughout the season and, and it's a confidence thing, man. And, and it's so I've had players in the past. They're like, it's not, that's not it coach. That's it's, it's, I gotta be doing this or this. And I say, you know what the problem is? Is you just answered the question with that. I said, you guys got to simplify this, man. You got to go to bed knowing you're the, if you you're the best hitter in the nation and you're going to wake up tomorrow. I thought that was so cool. And, and the touch on the things you guys said and the culture building that. And, you know, people can win, with a team that's full of talent and no character, but a team that's full of character is going to sustain their success in baseball a lot longer than the teams that don't build that. And I think that's a, uh, Oregon state is a no brainer of that example. So, well guys, this has been another fun episode. Um, Check us out on Facebook, Pacific Northwest Fungo Banter, on Twitter at Fungo Banter PNW. Please get on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, rate, review, share. Let everybody in the Pacific Northwest know about our podcast. Uh, we're super excited that you guys are listening. Thank you so much. And we can't wait to get back to another episode with you guys and talk some more baseball. I think we're getting closer. I think we're getting closer, guys. So uh, take care of one another, stay healthy, and let's get back to baseball. <laughs>